Well, I don't think I've ever been so well anticipated in all my life. Um, which I'm, I'm going to ditch my introduction um, because that, that introduction is actually where we're going today. Are you anticipating the arrival of Jesus? And if so, what difference will it make to our lives? If you're a guest here this morning, uh, can I say a very warm welcome? I'm Sam. You've probably have been told that uh, I'm the late one. I've just come from uh, somewhere else. Uh, and uh, I'm a student minister here at Wall Street. And we've been going through over the last few weeks, uh, what does the grace-filled Christian life look like? That is, what does life as a Christian look like today, having been changed and transformed and redeemed by Jesus? We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. I know that we've prayed, uh, we've asked for God's help. So join me as we dive straight in. What will the Christian life look like? And really, like I said, the introduction, waiting, knowing the time. Yes, I do have a watch. Um, it makes a difference to life. And what we're going to do is we're going to need to have Christ's mind to live the Christian life fully and properly. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. We're told, Christ suffered in the flesh. So that's the first thing you need to know. The Christian life begins with Christ. And the event central to the life of every believer is that Christ suffered. God, can you believe this? God the Son came down and took on human nature just like you. Yes, skin, bone, feelings, emotions, a mind, everything else. He suffered just like one of us. And we heard last week the incredible good news of the gospel that Christ suffered, yes, like us, but also for us. Christ suffered once for sins as a swap, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. It means that the Christian life now is one that's under grace. Christ, you see, brings everyone who believes in him to God. And while we don't add to our salvation, we certainly are to follow our Saviour. For we heard the week before that for those who have put their trust in Christ, he now sets us an example. So to, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So you see, Christ suffered and died in our place to forgive our sin, and Christ suffered and died and sets the example for us in the Christian life. So chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And what is that way of thinking? Well, we don't have to guess. We're told, verse 1, share Christ's mind. But verse 7, be sober-minded. You see, being sober-minded is all about being fully alert, isn't it? Fully aware of the time, the places you're in. And what is it that we'll be aware of? as we share Christ's thinking. We'll look in between verse 1 and verse 7, two, two bookends, if you like. Share Christ's mind, share Christ's minds. What's in between? 
five references to the time. So we have verse 1. Look with me. It's time to cease from sin. Verse 2, it's time to live not for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, the time was past for doing what the nations did, but now is not that time. Verse 5, the time is close to judgment, for Jesus is ready to judge. And verse 7, time is nearly over, for the end of all things is at hand. I hope you're persuaded by now that the Christian then will arm themselves with sober thinking about the time that we're in. And the command to arm yourself is really the command of the soldier. And Peter and Peter's, uh, people in Peter's day uh, would be well familiar with this, living as part of the Roman-occupied uh, military empire, seeing soldiers marching up and down, on patrol, off to war, off to patrol. They'd see the soldiers uh, uh, lift up their packs, strap on their belts, strap on their sword, and after all these things, uh, hoist their shield, uh, the hoplon, onto their backs. Why? So that that, that, is, that makes them ready to defend themselves in case of sudden attack. And that's the verb that Peter uses, uh, to arm yourselves. It is to lift up your shield, be battle ready, think as a Christian, Battle readiness. And what does battle readiness look like as a Christian but remembering the times that we're in? Of course, the implication is that by nature we don't do this very well, do we? Uh, there is what we might call cognitive dissonance. That is that there's a disjunct between what we think and feel and what we're told here. Uh, you know this, I know this. It's why this morning as you had your wheat bix or your toast or your second cup of coffee, uh, you weren't thinking about the end and the judgment day, were you? I've got to be honest, I wasn't either. Uh, there's what we might call cognitive dissonance. It's very difficult to make sense of what we uh, are told about the end when we think that tomorrow will be basically the same as today. And Peter says that if we think that way, we've maybe dropped our guard, we've dropped our shield, and he, he reminds us, he calls us in Christ, under grace, to bear up your shield once more. So will you join me as we do that, as we share Christ's mind, as we think about the end? And as we do so, there'll be three marks so that we can spot the person who is thinking with Christ's mind. And here's the first, and there's an outline on your sheet that you handed uh, when you came in, if you're following, we're on to the first. There'll be three marks to spot the Christ-minded person, and they will know that now is time for suffering, not sin. Verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Peter here is not talking about any kind of suffering. I know and you know that all suffering is suffering. Uh, we suffer in our, in our bodies, we get ill, we get sick. Uh, we suffer in our minds with anxiety. God knows and God cares about all suffering. But Peter here in this chapter, every time he mentions suffering, it's always about suffering as a Christian. 
This is suffering that only the Christian experiences. It's suffering for being obedient to Jesus. And in the Christian life, you see, uh, there'll be times when uh, we need to make a choice as a Christian. Uh, we'll be faced with suffering, and we need to make a decision. Do I, a, do I live wholeheartedly and obediently for Jesus, even if it means suffering? Or, or do I uh, live like Jesus means nothing to me? Do I compromise? Do I keep my head down? Do I blend in? And in those moments, the person with Christ's mind, aware of the time, thinking soberly, will choose obedience even in suffering 10 out of 10 times. It's like they've left sin behind, and that's what it means by they've ceased from sin. It doesn't belong to me anymore. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to live for Jesus even in suffering. For now's the time for suffering for Jesus rather than sin. And this makes complete sense, doesn't it, when we're aware of the time? I mean, let me give you an example. If you knew that Jesus was going to return at four o'clock this afternoon, uh, for one, well, uh, Tony wouldn't bother making dinner for a start, uh, but at, at 3.55, if you knew that Jesus was returning at four o'clock, at 3.55, do you think you'd be engaging in sin? At 3.59, do you, do you think sinning makes a whole lot of sense? Well, no, it doesn't, does it? It makes no sense at all. In fact, sin is the most nonsensical thing for Christians who are aware of the time. But on the other hand, if you knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow and you were suffering for Christ today, do you think you could hold on a little bit longer? I reckon so. For now is the time we're aware of the end. We're aware, we're thinking soberly with Christ's mind. It's better to suffer for being obedient to Jesus and given to sin. Well, here's the second mark of the person thinking with Christ's mind. It, it, we know that it's time for judgment, not joining in. Look with me at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, can we join in with the world around us? Well, of course. I love a bit of touch footy. Oh, we can join them in the shopping queue. We can join them at the playgroup, at the school gate. Oh, we live and breathe the same air as they do. Of course we can join in. But Peter says, well, and we must join in. But Peter says we cannot join with them in their sin, what he calls debauchery. But you see, the Gentiles, they will be surprised by this. But of course, it, with their mind, it makes complete sense. Why, I mean, to them, why, why wouldn't you live in sin if now is all there is? If there is no end, if there is no judgment, well, for a start, if there's no judgment, there's no concept of sin. Why wouldn't you just live how you like, do what feels good, live according to your own ideals? And isn't it interesting that what Peter singles out as marking the first century unbelieving world are two things, sex and alcohol. Uh, for the first century world, the motto is live and let live, love and let love, be who you want to be and do what you want to do. Now, I know this as well as you do, that this isn't every individual unbeliever, 
But I think you'll agree that this is pretty much the culture around us. This is certainly the British culture, and we've managed to export that culture all around the world. So you can thank us uh, for that later. An obsession with sex and alcohol. But you see, if there's no judgment, then why not? Why not go on a 24-7 bender? Why not join in with debauchery? Why not deny Jesus when it suits? Yet Peter says we will all have to give an account, won't we? But at the end of chapter 3, uh, we're told Christ Jesus has been raised, verse 22. And because he's been raised, he has gone into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. Now, do you know what that chair is called at the right hand of God? That's the judgment seat. Christ is the judge and all people everywhere from all nations will have to respond to Jesus and answer for how we have treated him. So let's arm ourselves and think with Christ's mind, now is the time for judgment, not joining in with sin. Now the first two marks of the believer has been, have been negative. Verses 1 to 6 are about what not to do. Well, now verses 7 to 11 are positive. What is the Christ-minded person to do? What's our third point? 1C, it's time for serving, not selfishness. Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Knowing the time changes everything, doesn't it? That's why when you're on the school run and you know the kids have got to be there at 9 o'clock and it's 8.58 and you're still on the driveway, you just press the accelerator pedal as far as the speed limit will let you. Don't you? Knowing the time changes everything. And knowing the time is to transform the Christian believer and make them stand out. Did you notice how the qualities of verse 7 are the opposite to verse 3? Self-controlled is the opposite to selfish sensuality and passions. Sober-minded is the opposite to drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. Prayerfulness, that is right relationship with God, is the opposite to lawless idolatry. Christ-mindedness will mark us out as being different. And this different life is seen in three areas. Loving others, verse 8. Showing hospitality without grumbling, verse 9. And serving, verse 10. Now, I wonder if you're thinking, what is this section doing here? I mean, is it that Peter just wants to chuck in a few random commands? That's certainly what some people think. He's been talking about suffering and living in the world, but now he's saying, oh, just kind of love others, serve, and you know, have people around for dinner and treat them as friends. Is that what he's at? Just a few random commands. No, I don't think so. He's talking to Christians undergoing intense persecution. So I've got two options for you. What do you think? Option one is that this section, verses 7 to 11, this is about how to love your church. This is how to love other Christians who are suffering for Jesus. That is, as Christians suffer, well, imagine this is Wall Street, and you knew that there's someone in your growth group, and they're having a really hard time because they're standing up for Jesus. We need to love them, don't we? We're not going to make life harder for them. We're going to show them hospitality, treat them as a brother and sister 
in Christ. We're going to serve them. Loving them is going to be vital. What do you think? I think this is how to treat, this is how we're to treat our church family. But here's the second option, and this is what I'm going to go with. You can talk with me later. I think this has wider application than just the church and Christian people. It certainly includes the church. But Peter has been referring to the Christian's life in the world, verses 1 to 6. And there is no reason, zero reason, why we should think that he changes view now. He certainly doesn't indicate that. He's had the believer's life in the world in view all through the letter, and certainly verses 1 to 6, and I think he's got the believer's life in the world in view now. Perhaps he has Jesus' words in his mind. Jesus said this in Luke 6, If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Don't even sinners do the same? And even sinners serve sinners. But love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who abuse you. I don't think that's going to be easy, do you? I don't think that's going to be easy at all. I think, though, that Peter is talking about the Christian loving and living among the world that maligns them and still loving them. So if we're going to obey this, it means that when the unbeliever causes you to suffer in a big way or in a small way, could be a word, could be physical or mental abuse, this is how it works. Loving, well, loving will do two things. First of all, loving them will cover over your sin of bitterness towards them. Loving them will cover over your sin of bitterness towards them. And that's what we should always do when we're frustrated and we're angry at someone. We should always think, well, what... What, am I, what, do I, what sin do I need to deal with myself? Peter says, loving others covers over a multitude of sins. Loving the person who abuses us covers over our bitterness towards them. But secondly, loving the person who abuses us covers over their sin towards us. And it shows them Christ, which as we've seen before, is what Peter's really concerned with, a world that knows Christ Peter got it before CMS did. But here's the other thing. That loving the world that abuses us also involves showing hospitality without grumbling. Showing hospitality literally means uh, loving the other person who is not like you. And why are they not like you? Well, they're causing you to suffer. That's why we're to do it. Show hospitality without grumbling. And yet, who do you show hospitality to? A friend. How are we to treat the person who treats us as enemies? We treat them as friends. For the person with Christ's mind will live as Christ did. For how did Christ treat us? Let me remind you from Romans chapter 5. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. I think... Here, Peter is saying that in the world, we're to love others. Yes, even the unbelieving world that causes Christians to suffer, which is why, no doubt, we're to serve them with the strength God supplies. And, and what is that strength? Is it that, you know, you just have to be a really superhuman kind of person that can just take pain like an, 
uh, like a Royal Marine from the British Army, just pain after pain after pain? Is Is that the kind of Christian that Peter wants us to be? No. The strength God supplies is giving us a mind like Christ that's aware of the end. Because being aware of the end means we can endure and live rightly. So let me ask, as I wind up this first point, do we know the time? Do you know the time? Are you someone who knows the time and aware of the times that we're in? Judgment close, Jesus near, salvation moments away. Will our activities and our attitudes this week make sense to a sober mind of the times that we're in? Well, you'll be pleased to know we're more than halfway through and we're on to our second point. We've been thinking about sharing Christ's thinking. Now we're on about sharing Christ's suffering. And given what Peter said so far, it is that the person who shares Christ's thinking will lead to suffering. And we were shocked last week, at least I was shocked as Rod was speaking. Were you shocked? I was shocked. Because Rod said, as Peter says, that in chapter 3, verse 17... Peter said, it is better for suffering, sorry, it is better to suffer for doing good than deny Jesus and sin. And I want to ask, is that right? Has Peter made a rare apostolic blunder here? Is it ever right, is it ever better to suffer for doing good rather than sin? Again, I think Peter wants to correct our cognitive dissonance. And we're on to our second point. It's verse 12. This is what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Peter writes to correct our cognitive dissonance for it does seem strange at first, doesn't it? That the Christian should suffer for doing good. Because we're conditioned from a young age, aren't we, to think that you only suffer for doing the wrong thing. That's what we think, isn't it? So we're often told as as children, aren't we, don't touch the cooker, it will burn you. Uh, Don't play in the traffic, the cars will hurt you. Now those are good commands. Those are things that I tell my children. But it does mean that we're conditioned, and we're all conditioned, to think that obedience brings safety. Well, if we disobey those commands, that will bring the suffering. Touch the cooker will bring suffering. And that suffering is always bad. Now, it's easy to understand, then. I think we can uh, be real with ourselves. It's easy to understand why we find it hard to believe that suffering might be good, and also why doing good might lead to suffering. Again, Peter wants to correct this cognitive dissonance, this, uh, this difficulty in believing him. But he's saying, don't be surprised by this. The implication is that it does. Don't be surprised and think that it is strange for Christians to suffer. But I think he's got another point to make, which I think is even more surprising. It is that it is good, it is better even, to live the wholehearted Christian life and suffer for it. Again, is Peter making a 
shocking apostolic mistake. No, I don't think so. This is what he says. For living the wholehearted Christian life in suffering gives you great assurance. This is hard to do, but easy to remember. Points are A, B, and C. Sharing Christ's suffering brings assurance, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, but verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Well, first of all, we've got to ask, what is that fiery trial? Peter's mentioned the fiery trial before, and please turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 6, to remind ourselves of what he said. Chapter 1 and verse 6. Peter said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? What is this saying? It is saying that fire can be good. For fire, yes, fire burns, but fire can also refine. And the picture here is of the goldsmith. You go out to Victoria, you go into your mine, and you bring out a gold nugget. And it's got a bit of dirt on, a bit of dust, a bit of grit in, and so you put it in the fire, you put it in the crucible and into the furnace. And the hotter and hotter it gets, the more the, the rock, the dust, the grit, the dross burns away. And the hotter and hotter it gets, the purer and purer the gold, until what you're left with is 100% pure Aussie gold. And the buyer comes along and he sees this gold, and he wants to buy it because what he has is pure 100%, pure guaranteed gold. And Peter's point is that the believer's fiery trial is the fire of refining. It gives them pure, a faith, a refined faith, more precious even than gold that will result in praise and glory. And here's the point. If you've suffered as a Christian and you're still Christian, then you have been through part of that refining process and you have tested 100% pure guaranteed faith in the Jesus who suffered. We're talking about the doctrine of union with Christ, and it is that if you have genuine faith, it will unite you to Jesus. And if Jesus suffered and ended his glory, then you united to him through your suffering because he suffered, and because you put your faith in him and you, you're united to him, you will too be with him in glory. It's why Peter says, if you're suffering, you can rejoice. You share Christ's sufferings. You have genuine 100% pure faith in Christ. You can have assurance of being with him forever. And not only that, but here's our second point. Suffering brings blessing. Turn to verse 14. Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are among the most pitied people. No, he doesn't say that, sorry. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are probably a loser. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And again, I wonder if we're thinking, has Peter made another apostolic blunder? Did he really mean to write that? Surely he meant something else. No, if we suffer because we're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit, how, is this? how about this for a promise? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
if you've read your Bible at all, you'll know that the person who received the Spirit resting on him was Jesus. Jesus at his baptism, as he was being marked out as king of this kingdom, what marked him out as belonging to the kingdom? The Spirit descending on him. He immediately went into the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan. He resisted Satan. And we're told that that happened as the Spirit empowered him for kingdom living. So what does the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit comes on the believer. And the Spirit empowers the believer and marks the believer out for kingdom life. That's what we're told in chapter 1. That's what we're told. You might like to turn to it, but again, back to chapter 1, verse 2. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit sanctifies the believer. The Spirit marks the Christian out for the kingdom to come. And secondly, verse 5, the Spirit is the Spirit of power. And by the power of God, the Christian is guarded by God's power, guarded through faith for salvation. So what does Peter mean in chapter 4, verse 14 in our passage? If you are insulted, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory rests on you, the same spirit that rested on glory and marked, uh, rested on Jesus and marked him out for the kingdom, rests on you and marks you out for the kingdom. The same spirit that rested on Jesus and empowered Jesus for kingdom living to endure marks you out and empowers you for kingdom living and to endure. That's why we're blessed. We're going the same way that Jesus went through suffering to the cross. Which explains why verse 15 is here. You see, if Peter's right, then we might think, if suffering for being a Christian brings blessing, then I'm going to get my footy and I'm going to kick it into as many windows as I can on my way back home. Is that what he's talking about? Is it that uh, I'm going to uh, suffer as much as possible and so I'm going to get, get my car keys and scratch my neighbor's car so that I suffer as much as possible so that I'm blessed? No. That's, if I can say this word in church, that's stupid If you suffer because you're stupid, you deserve to suffer. You're an idiot. But Peter's saying, no, we're suffering as a Christian. And might I add, we don't need to go looking for this suffering. If we're living the wholehearted, authentic Christian life, obeying God at every turn, in a hostile world, suffering will come. But his point is that when you are insulted, you are blessed. We're on to our third and final point. Third, sharing Christ's sufferings brings confidence. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Suffering is embarrassing, isn't it? Uh, Suffering makes us feel weak. But Peter isn't saying, let him not be ashamed, there, there, don't worry, and he's pulling out the tissues and wiping our eyes and our nose. No, He's making an apostolic declaration. He's saying that the Christian who's suffering, let this person not be ashamed. This person who's suffering has no need to be ashamed. Why? For verse 17, Peter has the judgment in mind. And the person who suffers in Christ will not be ashamed, for judgment is about to begin at the household of God. Now, I think this, on first glance, 
is one of those difficult verses. What does it mean that judgment is about to begin at the household of God? That is the church, that is Christians. I thought Christians were supposed to be immune from judgment. No, Christians will be judged. And judgment, in fact, is closer than we think. Did you notice it's not that Christians will be judged, but that judgment has begun. Now is the time for judgment to begin. What does this mean? Well, it's bound up again with the fiery trial. You see, everyone, says Peter, will face fire. Peter loves his readers so much that no doubt with tears in his eyes, he tells them the truth straight and he writes in his second letter about the judgment of God. He writes this. He says, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, I don't know how any of us can read that without having a lump in our throat. But it means that you and I, who are ungodly by nature, must find protection and refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, mustn't we? And a good question to ask would be, are we trusting in Jesus today? For in him and only in him is there safety and protection and refuge from the judgment to come. All will face fire, says Peter. Yet for the Christian, Peter is saying that the fiery trial, suffering now, is their judgment. Their trial is not easy, their trial is not pleasant, and it may not be quick, but rather than destroy, it refines, as we've seen. All will face fire, says Peter, but here's Peter's logic. Those who face one fire will not face another. And you're all Aussies, most of you, at least anyway, and you understand this. It's the principle of backburning. It is that when the fire crews go out into the bush, knowing that there's a bushfire coming, they backburn an area so that it's completely burnt, nothing left to burn. And the theory is that when, when the bushfire comes close to it, there's nothing left to burn, and it stops. You see, you can't burn the same area twice. And that's Peter's logic, that the Christian undergoing this fiery trial, remember, all will face fire, but the Christian undergoing suffering, their fiery trial, will protect them from the fire of the judgment to come. Peter's logic, fire doesn't come twice. But the Christian, for the Christian, their judgment has begun in the suffering. And that makes sense of his logic. If the suffering is hard, and it will be hard, if the suffering is unbearable now, living as a Christian, well, how much worse will it be for the ungodly, the unbeliever, the un person living in unrepentant sin on the day of judgment when Jesus returns. It might be that this morning you're not a Christian. This is why Jesus calls on all who hear to put their trust in him. He loves you. It's no accident that you're here this morning. You've been thinking, what do I make of Christianity? Why should I follow Jesus? What's it all about? Jesus loves you. He died for you. He gave his life for you, that you and I might be protected from the judgment to come.
But as we begin to wrap up, we've been asking this question. In the Christian life, is it actually better to suffer for doing the right thing than deny Jesus and sin? And we see three times, yes? For sharing in Christ's suffering brings ABC, brings assurance, a refined faith, united with Jesus, a place in glory. It brings blessing, the spirit of glory, guaranteeing a place with him and confidence, safety and security, no fear of judgment. And so verse 19 is the conclusion. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator by continuing to do good. See, what's the mark that we believe this? What's, what will be the mark, the sign that we are thinking with Christ's mind, that we are trusting our creator? It is that our lives now make sense in the light of the judgment. And because they make sense, we'll be willing to follow Christ, even if it means suffering. Because even there, suffering brings assurance, blessing, and confidence. Plenty to talk about over morning tea. I think my time is up, so please let me close in prayer. Thank God as I finish. Father God, these are wonderful truths. Thank you so much for Jesus, without whom we would be lost, utterly lost. Please give us Christ's mind that we might make sense of the times and so live wholeheartedly for him. Amen.